This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, I have a guest on who's done a book called, as I recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life. Casey Tigret is a pastor, a spiritual director, and the author of this book, and a previous book we'll be talking about a little bit too, and the host of the Otherwise podcast. Thanks, Casey, for being my guest today. My pleasure. Thank you for the time. So, um, yeah, maybe start off by telling us a little bit about your podcast and then a little bit about your life and work. Yeah, the podcast, uh, I, the story of the podcast is actually, I think it's, I always want to have like a heroic story of the stuff I did. Like I was visited by an angelic spirit who handed me, you know, a tablet and I had this message on it, but that's not quite how it happened. Uh, with the podcast, I, I thought it would be fun to bring people into conversations that I was having with interesting folks. So a lot of them were authors because they were people I was hanging out with, but uh, more to the point, people who had something to share on the idea of wisdom and how deeply entwined wisdom is in the spiritual journey. And uh, especially as a, as a Christian in the Christian spiritual journey. Uh, so I, I just started, I just started it. And kind of listened to the people that I liked to listen to and took some things from them that uh, I thought would be helpful or that I thought I would like to hear if I were me. And, uh, you know, over time, developed my own personality in that. But what we're really trying to do in the podcast is elevate the voices of women, um, the voices this year, uh, this recent season has been to elevate the voices of people of color uh, so that there is a, a broader understanding of what wisdom looks like in a spiritual tradition. So that's the heart of the podcast. I enjoy doing it. Um, it's gosh, it's way more work than I thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. I thought, oh, you just record it and then you put it out there and then you learn how to be an editor and a, you know, equalize a soundtrack. And so, uh, yeah, so that's been the the heart of the podcast up to this point. Mm. And it's part of a bigger, it's part of a bigger picture of what I do. Uh, my current role is I work at a church part-time as a theologian in residence. That's my title. And as fancy as that sounds, really and truthfully, my job is just to help us talk about things well. And so to articulate what we believe about God and how we believe that interacts with the human condition. And so that's part of my life. The other part is, of course, the podcast uh, and writing and doing spiritual direction. So I, I sort of I, I'm an Xer. I'm a Gen X. That's I fall at the tail end of it. So I'm straddling the line between X and millennial. But I do like the whole millennial idea of like gigging. So that's kind of where I'm at. I've got like a bunch of different things that I do. And uh, that's that's how my how my life lays out. So every week is different. And uh, it's an Enneagram four. Sometimes that's a that's a real benefit. <laughs> well, for people who don't know, I haven't done too much. Uh, see, I had the 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 thing happen to me where I was introduced to Enneagram about eight years before people were talking about it. And so by the time it came around, I'm like, no, no. <laughs> so I haven't talked about it too much. Do you want to describe what uh, what you mean by Enneagram four for any of my listeners who are yeah. clueless about that? Yeah, uh, I found the Enneagram to be a really helpful tool uh, in it, mainly because after spending some time, I did some doctoral research on personality types and things like that. And personality tests are great. I mean, they're fun for parties. Like, what are you? What are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but with the Enneagram, it really does point you towards the places where you are liable to fall mm. and struggle. Mm hmm. And that, I think, is the benefit of it, is to show you some of the dark sides. And an Enneagram 4 uh, is kind of the romantic type. They're the person who uh, tends to be creative, uh, tends to like to work on new things, and uh, struggles with follow-through. So as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's totally me. Um, and also tends to have uh, a feeling like they're the only one who is experiencing a particular emotion or situation. They feel like everything is very unique to them. And um, the other piece that was really helpful for me was the idea that fours tend to go through these seasons of melancholy. And so 
I have about every six weeks just this dip that hits and my wife knows it's coming. She can tell like she knows these little signs that are coming along and she'll say, oh, you're about to you're about to take one of those little dips, aren't you? And and I will. Um, This past year, it changed a little bit. I started dealing with depression a little bit and um, the dips went from being a day to about a week. And so but the Enneagram piece helped me to diagnose that and go, this is just a, a little bout and it'll pass. Um, so it helped me distinguish too what is just natural and what is, yeah, this is maybe more like depression and I need to Mm. process through that. Yeah. And I think, um, that is one of the things like a lot of people have taken Myers-Briggs or DISC or I found DISC the least helpful, but that was just me. Um, but those things can be tools. I, I think they're good as tools, but not answers probably. And, uh, they can help you they can be especially helpful understanding and having grace for people who aren't like us. Um, I've seen them really weaponized, though. <laughs> sure. And, um, and then when I look at the Enneagram, I'm like, how many wings can you have? Like, do I have six wings? <laughs> so I think it's great to, to understand, like, the opposite of what your gifts are, the, the weaknesses when you're not in a healthy place. It will show you the opposites. And I think for that, it's pretty valuable because uh, you might not really realize what the opposite end of of your personality is. And I think any any tool that you can, you know, the goal is to know yourself. And any tool that you can hold lightly enough in the service of knowing yourself and any discipline we do is is about that. The motivations we have, the the longings, the desires we have, if we have tools that we can hold lightly and use them to know who we are, uh, I think that's a benefit. It's when it becomes when the tool becomes the goal. Yeah, yeah. Or the penultimate thing. So if somebody tries to somebody tries to critique it, and you're like, "No, I have to defend the enneagram." Why? <laughs> it's a tool. Yeah. You don't have to defend a hammer. You know, a hammer is a tool. It does a job. Right. Um, the enneagram is the same way. You can talk about its benefits, but when you have to defend the tool, it's no longer a tool. It's it's the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I like to say, well, I'm a, I'm just a Pisces. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing, but uh, but yeah, it's actually I was pretty surprised at. I figured that the Enneagram would would have some resonance with people. I didn't think it would get to be super like everyone was talking about it. It would be like the first thing someone would say, well, what are you? Well, I'm this. And I, I did not expect that kind of um, buy-in. <laughs> and I guess I was just taken aback as as to, I mean, I'm glad people have found it useful. But then it almost felt, it reached almost a horoscope <laughs> level, like um, for explaining everything. It got to that point for some people. I could tell just in, you know, the shallow social media stuff. Well, uh, explaining every little thing away because of the because of the number and then you I guess as a formation person I'm thinking like it can't be it can it can be a helpful tool to examine something but when it starts to become excuses or <laughs> then it's kind of reached the end of its usefulness but um sometime I'll have to maybe bite the bullet and have a like an Enneagram expert come on so that anybody who's wondering like, why doesn't Lisa ever cover that? Well, I guess there's a little baggage there. <laughs> <laughs> it's good that knowing it's half the battle, Lisa. You're, you're I'm great. halfway there. One of my favorite quotes uh, when I started reading your book was something you said was, spiritual formation is learning to live like Jesus within the skin we're in. That's a little bit of a tongue twister, but um, learning to live like Jesus within the skin we're in. That's a little tricky to say, but I love that uh, sentiment. And do you think you could explain that a little bit for people I've just totally confused? <laughs> no, that's great. And and you know what? The funny thing on the backside of this and people who have written and published before, there's always a uh, there's always a spot where your editor will say to you, I don't, do you really want to say this? Is this really <laughs> what you want to say? And that phrase for me is important because is it's very easy for our faith or our um, journey to get decontextualized. So it can be moved out of the real life and become this sort of 
thoughts or ideas, but doesn't have any grounding in reality. And so I, I grew up in a in a Christian tradition that was very much about uh, this whole heaven when you die idea. And the goal was that. And so as a person who came to faith as a preteen, uh, I wasn't ready to die anytime soon. And so the really fruitful, like tasty, juicy, delicious parts of faith, I was like, well, I guess I'll just wait on that. Uh, and, and so there wasn't anything there. And so as I started to take this deeper journey in spiritual formation and started to see this invitation from Jesus to be a part of the kingdom now and to become, and that, you know, I had people around me debating theology, but the biggest thing about it is you're, you're invited to become something here and now. And so formation for me is Borrowing a phrase from Dallas Willard, it's learning to do what Jesus would do if he were I. And so I translated that down to say, it's learning how to become like him in the skin we're in. So we all have a life and circumstances and work and sexual hangups and addictions and uh, depression and chemical issues and uh, brain chemistry issues. We all have these unique things. And so the, the relevancy of faith is always going to be, how do I become within the context of this stuff that I already am? So I will never be formed apart from being a white male who grew up in a primarily suburban area, but in the South. And so there's some things that go along with that. So part of my formation is going to be becoming like Jesus in dealing with the racism of my past. Part of it's going to be uh, dealing with the experience of coming from a family uh, that my parents were divorced after 19 years of marriage. There's always going to be some contextual pieces that shape how we become who we're becoming. And so that's that's the heart of that. And a lot of my work as a spiritual director is to help people to understand that. Like, you have to do this where you are. You are you are called and invited as you are, not as you should be, because that's how you get to who you should be. We 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 start here. We start in the present moment with all of its its foibles and invitations and frailties, and and that's how we get to where we're going. Yeah. Well, now that you brought up spiritual direction, what was your training in spiritual direction? Where did you um, have it, and what was it like? I. I became a spiritual director because I saw first saw a spiritual director um, in the midst of a pretty interesting season of ministry back in, I think, 2014, 2013. Uh, I was looking for someone with some insight. I didn't at the time feel like I, I needed therapy or counseling. Uh, so talking to some friends, they mentioned a spiritual director. I'd not heard much about that, uh, mostly because evangelicals were just are just coming around to it. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. Roman Catholics and Episcopals and uh, Episcopal people, you know, people like that, those traditions have always had this hanging around. Uh, so I started seeing a director and through the course of our relationship, I it, it dawned on me, gosh, I feel like this is something I'm being invited to do and to give to others. And so I took my, uh, the program I did was through a, a group called Christos Center for Spiritual Formation. And they are founded in uh, Minnesota. But the spiritual direction program is called Tending the Holy. And there is a campus in Chicago uh, near where I live. And I did a two-year program through them. And it was a beautiful thing. It was really intriguing, though, because it was a cohort of about 20 people. And uh, there were only two men, myself and another. And as a variety of uh, faith traditions, uh, Presbyterian, Baptist, uh, from the African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, the ages. I was by far one of the youngest people, mm -hmm. so yeah. I had a bunch of moms. They were all like my spiritual moms, which mm -hmm. was kind of which is kind of cool. So it, it was a wonderful program, though. Well, what's the biggest difference you notice from pastoral or ministerial training, uh, the kind you might get at? Um, seminary or something like that compared to spiritual direction? How would you distill that for somebody? Uh, I would have to put that in my own. It would have to be my, specific to me because I mm -hmm. know that seminaries are all distinct across the board. But I think the biggest difference is how you approach 
answers. Mm. In the United States, most of our seminaries and Bible colleges are very much Western in their approach. And so we are an empirical tradition. So we're looking for answers to questions, information that proves, uh, that leads to a verdict of some sort. And we allow for mystery. So I don't want to paint too broad of a brush. Like there's space for, you know, I don't know, but for the most part, we're trying to help people answer questions. And I think there's a place for that. There is also a place for what spiritual direction provides, which I feel like is, holding space for someone to just process what they're hearing without guiding them to to a particular end point. And so as I go into a direction relationship, the first thing I tell a person is, number one, that we're going to have a lot of silence. And so that may take a while. It may feel awkward right. because we're not used to having that much silence exactly. in between people. Yeah. And then the other thing I say is, more than likely, we're not going to finish with me saying, okay, now here's three things you need to do before next week. Um, what I'll try to do is point out some things that I notice. Uh, I hear you saying this. I notice this. Maybe pay attention to what what's going on here and, and how you've been praying about this particular thing. And so I'd say that's the biggest difference is our approach to answers, whereas uh, – a lot of my training in seminary was how do we help people answer the critical questions? Uh, I think the direction would be how do we get people help people to ask the critical questions and then wander into them by the guidance of the spirit. I really appreciate you um, specifying that. Um, I, I went to seminary too, but not to become a pastor. So some of those pastoral um classes that I just didn't take them. I took formation direction classes. But um, I think that's a very excellent point. And I would also say living into the questions. Mm. Because in regular life, you know, in, in regular life, it's not so simple, usually, like, uh, it's either this or it's this. You know? In relationships with people, you don't get the um, advantage of having these kind of either or Situations. I mean, I think that's what's so appealing sometimes to to keep things stuck in in our heads in an abstract way, uh, because real relationships with people, when you're stepping into areas of great pain or anguish or conflict that we have with with other people or with uh, people that we're walking alongside is incredibly ambiguous and conflicted and full of contradictions. And it's not like, well, here's the simple answer. Simply do this. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you find this. I find that there really isn't a good answer for loneliness mm. other than presence. Yeah. 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 And it's not like once you have so-called presence, once you're there with a person, boom, it's done. It's settled. <laughs> You know, it's it's a, one of these ongoing um, healing processes of of a loneliness wound or, you know, a, a feeling of um, neglect somewhere along the line that was an early wound that continues to come up and, and get ripped open again. I think that's the part that that is maybe so much more needed in our culture now with people don't have time for um, really deep spiritual companions and friendships, or maybe they do. And, and, uh, I think there's, there's goodness in both things, having deep spiritual friendships that you can have and with people you can trust that are your friends and also direction with somebody who's hopefully doesn't know every single thing about all your friends and, all your, you know, can have a little bit of a objectivity. Um, I find both of them really helpful. Both of those uh, relationships. It's not very helpful. I also find that if I'm suggesting spiritual direction to someone who is in some sort of church work, if they're mm. parish ministry or uh, on a staff at a church, I, I usually recommend to them going to a director who's outside their tradition. Because there is something about that you know, the rabbis talk about turning the gem and you see the different light refracted and that's a way of talking about scripture. But I also feel like there's a way of looking at life that's similar. And so to have someone who doesn't come with the exact same theological or even 
you know, church structure underpinnings, they can say some things that are really helpful to kind of shatter preconceived notions or stuff that we assume that we just didn't know we assumed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially, um, that was the case for me, my director, uh, she's moved since moved, but, um, Ignatian trained Roman Catholic grandma of five, uh, five children and grandma of question mark. I don't know how many, but, um, she had no idea really what Protestantism was never, you know, went to a service or anything. So she would ask really interesting questions. Well, well, is this part of this? And, and actually sometimes it was sort of my answers to her questions were sort of embarrassing. Like, oh, well, actually, you know, that's not part of what we do at all. Or, or you know, it would be, it would just be really interesting because she would, she from ignorance would be asking me great questions that I would have to consider. Well, why aren't we doing that? Or, you know, um, why aren't we taking these certain things into consideration? But I think the other the other good point about direction is that if we need therapy, we're having an issue with um, healing or a trauma, and we need therapy. That's that we should seek that out, and I will turn people over to therapists when I think that that's that would be better for them. But therapy really does look at things from a problem standpoint, and I think direction it, it really doesn't look at things in through pathology in the same sorts of ways and that can be really helpful when you know direction is really just life to life it's not um looking for uh let's make sure like like a sickness kind of um approach and so i wish that you know it it would be my great great wish that every pastor would have a director they could go to and trust and i don't think we would have the same sort of problems with like the scandals and the the hidden sins and secrets that wind up blowing up churches and and ruining lives if we if everybody in pastoral ministry had someone to confide in like a director yeah i agree and so many pastors i know have no idea what direction even is so that's the other that's the other thing i wish i wish the uh, spiritual director would replace the Enneagram in popularity, but who knows? (laughs) Well, maybe we're too early, Lisa. I mean, maybe we're eight years too early on spiritual direction as well. Well, yeah, it'll be up to us. We'll have to spread the word. (laughs) So um, on page 124, you talk about um, memories of music and writing a psalm. Uh, Do you think you can talk about this section in your book for a little bit? I love talking about it. And I say this not from a like narcissistic point of view, but I love talking about my book books because when you said that just now, I was like, 124. Do I remember what I wrote in there? So I'm glad you gave me some context. The chapter deals with how our emotions come about and that our memory actually has a, a really strong role to play in the formation of our emotions uh, because our brain our brain basically tallies up experiences and we learn how to feel based on what we experience. And so, you know, my daughter who's 12 now, but I remember when she was younger, I remember her experiencing things for the first time and trying to navigate that. Like, what is this feeling I have? Like, is it like the first time you have a stomach ache, like, is, am I sick? Am I nervous? What is it that I'm feeling right now? And so our, our memories have a huge part to play in that. And so when I when I read the Psalms, I, I think it's fascinating that Christian and Jewish scriptures include the Psalms because they are so messy and emotion laden, and they they just don't support a sort of read for answers like owner's manual view towards holy texts. Uh, because they're just they're filled with a lot of rage, a lot of um, sadness, grief, lament, and so part of what we do in the in the formation journey is to understand why we feel the way that we feel, and how that connects with this whole process of becoming like Jesus in the skin we're in. Because we never are we are we're never formed apart from the context we live in. And that includes, we'll never be formed apart from the things that we feel about situations. And so part most of the freedom that I've experienced in life has come from just the permission to feel something. 
and not to critique it and not to and not to have to put it down, especially things like grief. Um, I've heard well-meaning and I'm sure their heart was, was so longing for something good to happen from this, but people talking to those who have experienced a loss of a loved one saying, well, we don't grieve like those who have no hope echoing Paul's statement. And while I feel like that's a good thing to say, the, the, the implication is we don't grieve. We, we don't have that sort of wailing sadness and that's not at all the heart of it. it the, the, the text isn't we don't grieve, period, because we have hope. It says we grieve, but we also have hope. And so it's this – it's the human condition where you're constantly holding two things in tension. It's the grandmother who's struggled with chronic illness and cancer for the last 10 years who finally passes. And there is a blessing, but there is also this deep – deep hurt and loss and grief. And so what the Psalms do is they give us permission to, to celebrate the, the tidier emotions, which are those, like it makes sense that you would be sad that your grandmother has passed, whether you feel like that's a blessing or not, but also some of the untidy emotions, like the feeling of abandonment, like the feeling like God has left, has let down the side that he has left his post, he has stopped watching, and while he was gone, these, or while the divine was gone, I don't want to restrict it to male pronouns, while the divine was off duty having a smoke break or something, my life fell apart. And so there are those, there are those psalms that just allow us to go, where were you? And so in the, in the chapter, I talk about 1996 was a year for me that I learned to feel a lot of things. Um, in the course of that year, starting from January through May, uh, I found out my parents were getting divorced. I lost a friend to suicide from a high school friend to suicide, and I had a pretty severe car accident. And so when I, when I have these feelings of things being out of control or loss or things that you assume are going to be eternal suddenly shattering, that I feel them all connect back to that to those three moments in time. And that's part of who I am. They make me who I am. And they will also be the tools that help make me who I'm going to be. And so as I work with people in direction, a lot of times there's there are these traumas that they can name or they come in and say, I, I just don't feel like I'm close to God or that God has abandoned me. And my first question to them will be, well, tell me about a time when you felt like the divine was present. So if you can remember that emotion that sense. Now we can give some context to the sense of absence. And then writing a psalm, the practice at the end of the chapter to write a psalm is to have us just take that very serious, metaphorical, poetic kind of approach to saying, here's what I'm feeling right now. And I don't have words, but I've got some pictures. And I've got some, I've got some untidy, non-divine, unsanctioned words that I would really like to use for what's happening right now and just giving permission for that to happen. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point about um, uh, something I had to push through, I think, bad theology, bad teaching from my childhood background. I was a pastor's kid, but uh, that didn't spare me <laughs> from too many, too many things. But just the idea that every emotion you have is a, is a human one. It's what you're doing. Are you sinning with those emotions afterwards? But having them, um, we can't deny our humanity. And the Psalms doesn't deny um, anybody their feelings. You, they can, the, mo the most horrendous <laughs> feelings like smashing your smashing babies on stones. I mean, that's that's pretty brutal. And we can't like sanitize what um, the writers of those Psalms were saying. They were saying what they actually felt. And it's allowed to be said. They were saying them and it was helping them to not actually do what they were feeling. I'm, I'm sure that had something to do with it and asking that God, um, you know, comfort them in their time of feeling such anguish. But I think that I was definitely brought up like anger is sinning. That, that's, that's, that is a, you don't get to feel that one. That's, that's off limits. And I think that just having 
someone tell you, of course you can feel angry. It's, it's if, whether you're going to hold it in like a poison is that's a different, that's a different question. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's interesting too, is to be able to say that as a per, I love, I grew up with music. I remember as a kid, like sneaking into my parents' stash of vinyl, not that I had to sneak, but I thought I did. I was, I thought it was this covert undercover music thief and would just listen to their music all day long on the record player. It's dating me too. Although vinyl's <laughs> coming back. So maybe it's not damn. Maybe I was just that cutting edge already. And how much of music is doing the exact same thing that the Psalms are. Um, my daughter is a Taylor Swift fan. And so uh, we've started listening to the Reputation album, and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, these are imprecatory psalms. Mm -hmm. These are songs of revenge, anger, brokenness, grief. And so how much music still does the work of conveying these things that you hear a song and you go, that, that's what I wanted to say. That's how I feel that person just had the ability to capture it. And I think the Psalms have the ability to do that for us and, and also to help us to express our anger so that we don't become angry people, you know, to be consumed by it to where it becomes the truth about us rather than, uh, the truth is I get angry and sad and frustrated and I'd like to slap the guy in the cube across from me at work. Uh, it's just part of who I am, but that's not what I'm going to do. Yeah, I mean, that's really the function of art is and theopoetics, we could say is that there's a place, there's a place for all those emotions and that God isn't separated from from those things. God is you know, with us. God's presence is with us through it. Um, I'll take this time to go to page 146 at where you talk about presence, the blessing of presence. And there's a quote about abiding uh, that's really powerful by Leslie Newbegin. Um, I'll, I'll read it. Um, you write, abiding, writes Leslie Newbegin, is the continually renewed decision that what has been done once and for all by the action of Jesus shall be the basis, the starting point, the context for all my thinking and deciding and doing. And that is a really potent description of what abiding is, because I don't know that we necessarily think of it in those terms. Uh, maybe you could speak to that. Yeah. Gosh, I, th I feel like there's so many different directions this goes. <laughs> yeah. um, because it, we have learned about, I think, I feel like, you know, I feel like we've learned about the lasting, like the, the duration of things from the relationships and from the culture that we see around us. And so, you know, when we look at relationships that have failed, um, we, there's, a, there, it creates an instability. And so I see married couples who they're living they're living in a way that says, I'm just not sure this thing's going to last. And in their minds, they think this really only affects how I deal with my wife or my spouse. But it's actually affecting the way they deal with pretty much everything because there's not a settledness there. There's not a sense of trust in this thing that uh, when I go away, it'll be the same. It's almost like children. Children have this the concept of object permanence. So if you show a child a ball and then you put it behind your back, the child actually thinks the ball stopped existing. Like it just disappears. And I feel like there's this lack of permanence that we have that when we're away from something, you're just not sure that I'm going to come back and my relationship's going to be there or my faith is going to be there. And I feel like what abiding does is this decision to say that question really has been settled. The presence question has been settled. And I, instead of living to create that, I live within the reality of that. And that gets so up in the clouds and everything. But I, I, the way I see it is like when I, when I leave my house and I, I, if I were to take my wedding band off, it, it doesn't change the fact that I'm still married. But the wedding band is a reminder that something is, something exists, something already has happened and it's finished and it's together. And there's a trust and there's an abiding and there's a presence with that. And so part of dealing with really difficult things from a Christian perspective is 
I meet so many people who are trying to deal with it from a perspective of creating something that isn't rather than living within something that already is, that's already been decided. We're, we're trying to earn the favor of God to deal with the stuff in the present instead of saying we have, we are those who have been given the favor of God. So now, since that's the case, how do we deal with what's in front of us? And so that abiding is choosing to know that we have this safe place that's already been built and decided that we can, we can remain in that continual presence of this thing has already been done. And, you know, writing as a writer, that's really comforting to me because some days I sit down and I write something and I read back over it and I go, this is ridiculously bad. This is garbage. Why am I? And it's that, you know, there's an active self critique there, but it doesn't destroy me because I could have a day of writing and it doesn't go quite so well. But at the end of it, it, I can say, but the biggest questions have really been settled. I'm, I, there's this question of presence and place and safety and care that's really already been decided. A good friend of mine, James Brian Smith, he calls it, he says, he has two key, what he calls the power narratives. The first one is, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And the second is, I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. And those two power narratives like living out of that, that if you abide with those things and just let them sink in, boy, there's a lot of things that just don't seem to bother us as much. And a lot of risks you can take uh, as a writer, as a podcaster, as a as a single mom, as a you know a housewife who, or a house husband who are just frustrated that things didn't quite go the way that they did, or they're frustrated with something else. You, you can dive into the whole human story with those two narratives, with that idea of abiding. And there are all kinds of things that suddenly aren't as, they're still difficult. They're still challenging. And our own inner journey is still difficult and challenging. But if we go there knowing the bigger questions have really already been settled. So now how do we how do we deal with this from that perspective? It's a vastly different world. One of the books that kind of helped me with a paradigm shift in that regard was Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, Those that collection of letters. I, something happened when I read that and I, and I thought, oh, I can just practice this presence that's already there. I don't... I don't know exactly what happened, what shifted inside because it's not really language based, I suppose. But it was kind of the let's let me operate out of this reality that I can, of course, talk to God at any time, like Brother Lawrence did in just a regular dialogue all day long. And I can live, I can be formed and live with the presence of God like you're saying, as a given, as not something I'm going toward and to, t- to attain sometime at some point <laughs> or from time mm. to time. But yeah, that, that absolutely. Is, that is the water I'm swimming in. Your book is full of... Um, pieces that talk about memories and and shell collecting and we haven't I haven't actually in this conversation we haven't really delved into that there's going to be lots for people to to discover uh, when they read your book as I recall Uh, but one of the things that I particularly enjoyed is toward the back of the book which you're talking about future memories of course maybe the play on words and the paradox of that gets my attention Um, but could you talk a little bit about what you're saying when you say future memories. Yeah, it's one of those moments I love. It. I have a friend who's a, who's a visual artist and he says that he wouldn't know how to talk about God without metaphors and, and poetry. And I, I, I love that. Um, and so sometimes that you have this idea rolling around in your head and then you finally hit the term for it and you go, Ooh, you, Ooh, that, that's the thing. And so I happened to be reading, um, and a story about a neurosurgeon called uh, named Richard Restack. And he talked about when he would bring prospective neurosurgery students into his operating theater and he would show them 
what the pinnacle of of a neurosurgery career could look like and show them what they got to do and all of that. And he said what he hoped to do was to create a future memory, basically a, a, a moment that when they got into their residencies or their studies and things just became, this felt like they were impossible. They carried with them this rem, this memory, but a memory that actually pointed them towards a future that could be theirs. It very much was a vision casting kind of thing. And so in the book, I deal with the book of revelation, which it, hilarious to me, like I thought to myself, gosh, do you really want to touch this book? Um, I call it the, it's the sexiest book in the Bible because everybody wants to talk about it and nobody wants to read it. Um, but, uh, going into that and realizing a lot of times when we're in the middle of, of real crisis or struggle or just maybe not crisis or struggle where it's like this flashing red light, but it's that day-to-day slog where we're just trying to work through something. The thing we need most is to remember a future that we haven't seen yet, is to remember there there were times when things were really difficult and those times have passed and I grew in character and strength. And so if that's the case, that can definitely happen again. The circumstances might be different but I have the experience of going through this before. And so a lot of times in Revelation, the author is using old images, the images of Babylon. And Babylon fell. I mean, Babylon, you can't find it now because it doesn't exist in the same way. And saying that to a group of people being oppressed by an overbearing empire saying, hey, guys, remember, you know, Babylon fell. This, this can pass too. And so it creates this resilience in them. It's an ability to stand up under really difficult or challenging circumstances. It creates this resilience because it tells them everything is contingent. The suffering that you feel is contingent on a time period and it can fall apart. And so just trying to create that sense of strength, that spiritual, emotional, psychological strength to know this future memory is something that you can embrace. And when you embrace it, it gives you the, it gives you the ability to move through really difficult times going, I remember when things used to be bad and they are, they aren't that way anymore. And so it could be the same with this situation as well. Yeah. There are so many places in the Bible where God urges God's people to remember the works that God has done and and the salvation that's come so many times with God's faithfulness. And I think that that's kind of like remember, recall, but in in a way that brings the past into the present and then the present creates the future in the sense. And there's something about the sort of... Uh, timelessness of of that but also um, you know our, our anxiety can kind of create a, a, a poor reality than we could have I, I think um, so it's interesting how well you're playing with time a lot in in your book here but um, it really has a lot to do with what kind of perspective we're going to have how we're going to to trust in God yeah well, do you have anything you that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about within the book or any final words? I think the deepest, the thing that has been most um, impactful for me in talking about this book and just the freedom that comes in knowing that your memories actually matter. Uh, there is a strand of teaching in the Christian tradition. I don't know about other other faith traditions, but definitely in a Christian and more so maybe even in the evangelical Christian tradition, uh, because there is a sense of sin being in the past and so much of the scriptures being interpreted to say your past sins have been forgiven. And then the follow on to that is usually so let's leave them in the past. And, to uh, you know, popular songs talking about your past doesn't define you. And I think the permission giving part of this book is to say your past doesn't define you, but it definitely describes you because you, you have no story. Um, neuroscientist Eric Candle says that we would have no personal history. We have no understanding of who we are without our personal history and experiences. We wouldn't know how to have joy. We wouldn't know how to process the way we react. And so 
one of the things that if nothing else comes out of this book for people who read it, it is very simply that, gosh, I hope you feel the permission to know that your memories matter, that they are not final, but they, they can be redeemed and they can be brought into the present with some utility and usefulness and in even beauty. Uh, even though a lot of times they seem like things that we would just, we would much rather forget. And so, you know, we'd like to talk about forgive and forget, but I don't think that's possible. If it's deep enough that we need to forgive, it's probably not going to be something we can forget. It's not possible, but I don't even know that it's healthy. And so my hope is anybody who reads this just gets the permission, uh, whether it's learning wisdom from their memories or coming to understand their vocation or how they feel or how they're going to move forward into the future or even where they belong. Um, is there a place where I belong in the world, in my faith, that uh, you know that your memories matter and that they can be used and they can be beautiful, beautiful things in the future? That leads me to to want to ask just one more question of you then. Yeah. For people who have memories that they feel they don't like to revisit because they feel ashamed of, they would rather bury them or, you know, things that embarrass them or things that they, you know, I was a young, stupid person or, or whatever the case may be. For processing through those memories and integrating them into, you know, their authentic selves, their... their um, under the umbrella of grace and, and everything. How do you suggest that people begin to look at the memories that bring them the most pain or discomfort? Yeah. And I, I appreciate your distinction there too, because there are the ones where they happen to us and there are those that we affected by our own will and decisions. Uh, and the shame that comes from that is difficult because we're probably still living with the consequences and so there are, there are decisions I made as a stupid kid um, that have shaped me, but that's really where the journey of wisdom comes in. And I, I think one of the best ways to process it is to know that we make we can make a stupid decision and experience the failure of it. And the fruit of that can either be shame, which is the feeling that we'll never live down what has happened, or it can be wisdom which tells us it doesn't, this time will come around again. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. A situation like this will come again. When it does, let that shame translate, translate into wisdom to say, I'm not going to do that again. And as you live with the long-term consequences, this is where I, I when anyone reading the book, I, I hope they understand, and I, I do say it at the beginning, this is not something you go away with on a weekend and solve all of your problems from your past. Uh, this is a this is a book meant to be one tool held loosely on a longer journey. And so sometimes processing through past trauma and shame um, needs needs a therapist's touch or and a spiritual director's touch. Don't be afraid to tap into those resources. And so things we've done and we knew we did them that have caused shame, uh, they do tend to take a while. Um, although it's it's interesting to see, is it easier to is it easier to forgive someone else or to forgive yourself? And I think for a lot of people, forgiving someone else is actually easier. But forgiving ourselves is a bigger challenge. And so engaging with those memories that we'd really rather not think about is knowing that it's healthy and knowing that even in the midst of all of that, we we do have a place that abiding has been promised to us. And that's why in the, doing it in the context of faith, I feel like is incredibly, incredibly helpful. Uh, because the forgiveness question has really already been decided. The question now is, what do we do with what it is that we're experiencing? Can we gain wisdom from it? Can we learn how to handle a similar situation differently the next time it comes around? Uh, I have grown, I made so many stupid relationship decisions, I think starting at like 16 until I was 24. <laughs> it's just an epic season of, of relational stuff. Uh, part of that came from the relationships that influenced how I saw marriage and friendship. And so we also have to put our shame in context. 
how many times do we do things that are stupid that bring us shame, but we did them because we had no other idea how to do it differently. And so diving into our memories and saying, here's what I did. Where did that come from? And how, why did I think that that was a good idea? Then all of a sudden we start to uncover, not to say, well, it's somebody else's fault, but to say, well, that's where that came from. So what responsibility do I bear now? So those are just a couple of things. And a lot of times it's really contextual. It's so let's talk about the situation. And that's why a, a good therapist or a spiritual director is so helpful to say, let's dive into the weeds of your own life, the skin you're in. And then we can work our way out from there. Well, where can people find you? My listeners would like to listen to your podcast or see what you're up to online. Yeah. So my website is uh, my name, C-A-S-E-Y-T-Y-G-R-E-T-T.com, CaseyTigret.com. The podcast, there's a link to it there, uh, or it's on Spotify or iTunes. It's called The Otherwise Podcast. And I'm on social media, um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Not on Twitter as much anymore for my own mental health. (laughs) Right. a little bit. And those are the primary places. Um, and there are some other, uh, avenues where you can, uh, probably on YouTube, there are some talks that I've done on the book or on other topics and subjects. So, but through my website, you can find most everything you need to find. Yeah. Those will be available, uh, in the show notes. And uh, the book is called, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life. And it is really a great book. I uh, really resonated with a lot of the things here. It brought a lot of things to mind that I hadn't considered. So thank you for your work, Casey. And thank you for sharing some time with us. Glad to. It's my pleasure.